0: Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Friday, May 28th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Seven counties in the U.S. state of Oregon have now voted to leave their state behind and merge with neighboring Idaho. Could this actually work? A new English Dictionary of Ancient Greek fully and explicitly makes up for the modesty of its previous Victorian translators. And the best way to cook a hot dog. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Seven counties in rural eastern Oregon have voted to secede from their state and join neighboring Idaho to become Greater Idaho. The proposed move is precipitated by growing tensions between the rural counties and the state's urban population centers. The Greater Idaho movement is calling for 18 full counties and three partial counties in total to depart from Oregon and join Greater Idaho, accounting for 70% of Oregon's land, but only 21% of the population, or about 860,000 residents. The move would make Idaho the third largest state in the U.S. after Alaska and Texas, although that land accounts for so few people that Idaho would still remain in the latter third of state's population-wise. Such a move would require approval from Oregon and Idaho legislatures, as well as the U.S. Congress. The tension between the eastern and western halves of Oregon are a bit of a microcosm of the nation writ large. Quoting the New York Times, The Deschutes River divides the high prairies of the eastern half, agricultural and politically conservative largely, from the wetter, woodier western half, which has long been more populated and more liberal. The statewide shutdown orders that accompanied the coronavirus pandemic last year deepened those divisions, crippling businesses at a time when some rural counties had few cases. The protests and riots over race and police conduct in Portland, the state's largest city, widened the gap further still, and the defeat of former President Donald J. Trump, who won most counties but still lost the state by a big margin after President Biden's strong showing in the cities, capped off a litany of frustrations." End quote. Mike McCarter, the president of Citizens for Greater Idaho, told Business Insider, quote, we want out from underneath Oregon's governance and to go underneath Idaho's governance, which we tend to match up with better as far as our values go. Now, for 20 years plus, we've been trying to change the makeup and improve the makeup of the Oregon legislature. But when you haven't got the vote, there's not much you can do about it, end quote. Local reporter Don Call, writing in the more liberal Eugene based Register Guard, says it won't happen. Call is confident the Democrat dominated Oregon legislature won't approve it and is even more skeptical of Idaho and the larger U.S. Congress granting approval. But he does muse about how a smaller Oregon could be nice and that perhaps the Dakotas would merge in order to keep up with the greater Idaho's landmass. Mostly, Call points to an important detail that I think is the main reason the more conservative parts of upstate and western New York have yet to secede from liberal New York City no matter how often they threaten it—money. Idaho has a 6% sales tax that Call speculates many newly Idahoans wouldn't want to pay so they'd still cross the border back to Oregon to go shopping, as many Idahoans currently do. And Idaho itself doesn't have a great economy to support all those new residents and new land. Rural Oregon is largely supported economically by the big cities. As Call says, quote, Rural Oregon residents need us more than we need them, end quote. Which is kind of the point. Rural Oregonians are frustrated because it's clear the urban centers don't need them and therefore aren't taking their concerns seriously. McCarter, again the president of the greater Idaho movement, said, quote, 78% of the people are in the urban area, more or less in Willamette Valley in Portland. They control the legislature completely. They have a supermajority. That's why they don't care to listen to those representatives from Central or Eastern Oregon. They're dealing with issues around urban folks, and their social agenda is to be a sanctuary state, to allow the homeless people to come in to reduce the laws on drugs, to remove or lessen the budget for police officers. We're not saying that that's wrong. We don't agree with it, but they're dealing with those issues, and those aren't the issues that we have." End quote. And for their part, the Greater Idaho Movement does offer this to Idaho. If they get all the southern counties they want on board as well, then Idaho will have a direct access to the Pacific Ocean. They'll get more land and a population bump, and the group claims that the added residents have higher average incomes than most of Idaho, so they'll be paying more in taxes. Now, while the moving of state borders hasn't happened in recent U.S. history, it's often floated as a possibility. California has discussed splitting in two, and my home state of Texas always has one boot out the door, quoting the New York Times. While occasional talk of secession has accompanied the polarization of politics across the country, dreams of remaking the American map have been particularly resident in the West, where state borders were late in coming. In the late 1930s, residents of Wyoming, Montana, and South Dakota dreamed of forging a conglomeration of like-minded communities into a new state that would call itself Absaroka. The idea of a vast new political entity called Cascadia that would stretch up through the Pacific Northwest into Canada has fluttered in the regional consciousness for decades. More recently, residents of Northern California and Southern Oregon hatched the idea of a state that would be called Jefferson, end quote. And going along with that last one, the Greater Idaho movement does have plans to lop off the top of California as well if they succeed with this first plan, but they would just add that to Greater Idaho instead of creating a 51st state. The recent housing boom and movement of many people from cities to smaller towns, both fueled by the pandemic as well as tech industry shifts from, most significantly, California to Texas, adds some extra layers to all these proposed border changes. While the pandemic moves are largely more liberal and well-off families moving to traditionally more conservative towns, bringing different values but also revitalizing the local communities, the tech industry shifts tend to be more conservative business executives moving their companies to commensurately more conservative towns. Where the greater Idaho movement falls in all of that, whether other movements like theirs will spring up, and how it all affects each other remains to be seen. But it does feel like we're on the precipice of at least a minor shakeup in at least the identity of many communities and regions around the nation, if not the actual borders. And going back to Eugene-based Don Call in the Register Guard, he paints a likely scenario. Quote, Here's my conclusion. Oregon will add a 6th congressional district in 2022. If that new district focuses on non-Portland concerns, we can have a greater Oregon." There's a new Greek-English dictionary on the block, and it's refreshingly honest about the realities of life and language. H.G. Little and Robert Scott's Intermediate Greek-English Lexicon had not been updated since 1889, and this new effort, according to The Guardian, represents the first lexicon based on an entirely new reading since 1843, a project 23 years in the making. This is not only a landmark achievement, one which Professor Robin Osborne, chair of Cambridge's classics faculty, called an investment in the teaching of Greek over the next century, and which Michael Sharp at the Cambridge University Press said was, quote, one of the most important classics books we have ever published, end quote. But it is also a much-needed revision to the lasting markers of Victorian sensibilities in the previous Greek lexicon. And man, I swear, every time I turn around, I bump into something else that the Brits and Americans messed up in the 19th century. Like the number of origin stories that we think date back to ancient times, which were really just straight up fabricated from nothing in the 1800s, or the translations of older works that got chopped up and sanitized. I mean, it's wild how productive the 19th century was, but at times in such deeply off course ways. Anyways, Liddell and Scott's intermediate Greek-English lexicon is one example of that. Some of their entries had some now offensive and outdated senses of society. For example, they defined a certain type of shoe as being a kind of slipper worn by fops, which the new Cambridge Greek lexicon amended to simply, quote, a kind of simple footwear, slipper. But then, going in the other direction, the Victorians timidly obscured some of the more explicit language from the Greeks, reminiscent of other editing and translations from that era that attempted to basically hide the fact that any upstanding person ever performs any bodily functions or sexual acts. Quoting the Guardian, The verb shazo, translated by Little and Scott as ease oneself, do one's need, is defined in the new dictionary as to defecate. Lachizo in the 19th century dictionary translated as to wench and is now defined as perform fellatio. End quote. And while those are the definitions, The Guardian also supplies the direct translations now published in the Cambridge Greek Lexicon, which are the common swear words you'd imagine associated with those terms and more, and which I can't say without this podcast being marked as explicit by the very Victorian overlords at Apple Podcasts. So basically, yeah, this new version holds nothing back. It's completely explicit. Or as Cambridge professor James Diggle, who led the project after John Chadwick, who began it, passed away, describes it simply, quote, We use contemporary English. Apart from all the swear words, Diggle also updated how the lexicon is designed for better use by contemporary scholars. So for example, whereas the old version begins entries with a word's first appearance in literature, they now begin with the root meaning of the word, which is quite a bit more useful in my opinion. All in all, it is not just a huge achievement, decades in the making, and a much-needed update for accuracy's sake, but also a book that will give students plenty to giggle about while studying Greek for generations to come. It's a holiday weekend here in the U.S., but wherever you are in the Northern Hemisphere, at least summer is kicking off, and unlike last year, you may find yourself at some sort of cookout in the coming months. And in case you're looking to impress with your cooking skills, the team over at Food 52 has your back with the definitive best way to cook a hot dog. This is the latest in the absolute best tests series from food writer Ella Quitner, in which she tries several of the most popular methods for cooking foods like broccoli, turkey breast, bacon, kale, and so much more. It's kind of like wire cutter for cooking methods. And just in time for summer, she experimented with nine different methods for cooking hot dogs. Stovetop sear, stovetop seam and sear, boil, boil in beer, grill, oven roast, microwave, slow cook, and roast over flame. She also began by testing unsliced hot dogs versus slashed lengthwise versus spiral cuts. And just FYI, as controls for these experiments, she used all beef hot dogs and no condiments. Although does admit that, of course, condiments really make the dog. Now, everyone is probably going to have different priorities in what they're looking for in a hot dog. Quitner seems to really value juiciness and declares that the unsliced hot dog comes out the juiciest, even though it's a risky endeavor since it doesn't allow ventilation for steam. So proceed cautiously. But if you're all in for toppings, slashed is best because it gives you more surface area to work with and a nice balance. Spiral cut ended up being the driest of the three, but it does tend to impress people based on aesthetics. Now, as for cooking methods, here is how it turned out. If you're in it for the juice, boiling is the way to go. Whitner was a particular fan of boiling in beer, a method that calls for literally boiling a few cans of beer on your stovetop and dropping the dogs in to cook, and she said that it was a flavorful dog that, quote, tastes more like a hot dog than any other hot dog, end quote. But if you're going zero proof or prefer a less flavorful option so you can focus on the toppings, simply boil in water instead. And in general, boiling, quote, resulted in plump hot dogs with especially plush interiors, closer in texture to a great voice-wurst than to the rubbery dogs of childhood cafeterias, end quotes. Now, if you are looking to try to replicate a certain hot dog nostalgia, a few other methods may be more to your liking. For well-done skins with smoky notes, opt for grilling or roasting over an open flame which you could do on your stovetop if you've got a gas one in case you don't have a campfire nearby. And if you want a similarly well-done dog without the extra smoke flavor, go for a stovetop sear, basically just throwing the dog into a skillet with butter. And if you're looking for good old ballpark vibes, the slow cooker is the best route, although it will take the longest, several hours versus a few minutes. Quintner says, don't even bother with stovetop steam and sear or microwaving. The former was not noticeably different than searing without the steaming, and the latter had a rough, rubbery texture and is prone to exploding. Now, if you want some instructions on perfecting any of these methods, from slicing to searing, see the full article in the description box for step-by-step directions. And I gotta say, my favorite by far is roasting them over an open flame, both for experience and taste. Although, I recently tried German currywurst, basically just a sliced-up sausage with some vaguely curry-flavored ketchup slathered all over it, and I gotta say, that might be my new favorite, even if it's not strictly a hot dog. So I've talked a lot about cicadas on this show. They're kind of endlessly fascinating, and it's great learning more about them whenever a brood re-emerges. If you, too, love these weird little critters, you might enjoy this amazing item I discovered this morning. It is a cicada Flushy, like a stuffed animal. It's designed by scientist and artist Tyler Thrasher, and it features a cicada in its nymph stage, which you can then unzip or molt to reveal the adult cicada beneath. It's a kind of two-in-one toy. It looks super cool. And this isn't an ad or anything, although, full disclosure, it is for sale on the same site that I sell my personal merchandise on. I just thought it was awesome, and that especially some of you with kids might be into it, so link to check it out is in the show notes. In other news, whenever you're able to make it out to London, here's something to add to your list. You know the London Eye? That giant Ferris wheel-looking thing along the Thames River with the big glass observation pods? Traditionally, the pods have just consisted of a simple bench and some handrails, but last year, just before lockdown, as the London Eye celebrated its 20th anniversary, it briefly featured a few themed pods, like a garden experience, a West End miniature theatre, and, knowing the Brits, probably the most popular one, a pub. And now, as the London Eye is set to reopen on June 4th, they're bringing back the pub pod to stay, at least for now. For £55, you can take the usual half-hour ride on the Eye, but also get yourself two drinks and a souvenir gin cup. The bar actually looks super nice, with red velvet benches, a bunch of plants, and even a magnetic dartboard. I personally feel like I'd want to spend more than a half hour to really soak up the experience, but still seems pretty cool, and even cynical locals seem to be interested in giving it a go. So hopefully it'll stick around long enough for those of us from other countries to visit after international travel opens up a bit more. And on the note of holidays, this coming Monday is Memorial Day here in the U.S., which means that the Kotke Ride Home will be taking the day off. So I will be back on Tuesday, June 1st. And until then, I hope you all have a great weekend.